And hello and good evening. My name is David de la Gran. I'm your host for Full Circle's tribute to Indigenous people through a look back at some of our Full Circle archive segments. We're going to hear Full Circle hosts Sarah Blanco and CJ talk about the significance of the Alcatraz Sunrise Ceremony, the Taino population, and their relationship with Columbus, as well as our graduate apprentice, El Taino, telling us about his heritage and his personal reaction at the Sunrise Ceremony. We're going to hear from author of the Indigenous People's History of the United States, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, as well as a personal story about how homesteading in the United States removed lands from Native people. We're going to have reflections on Columbus Day, as well as music from Pura Fe, Native American singer and musician. Uh, We're going to go ahead and hand it over to the archived hosts, Sarah Blanco and CJ. So let's begin the show. Hello and good evening. Welcome everyone to Full Circle, produced by Apprentices of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program here at KPFA. I'm Sarah Blanco. And I'm CJ. And tonight, we acknowledge October as a National Month of Resistance by honoring the Indigenous people of the Americas. We have a very special show for you as it has been an exciting week of celebrating Indigenous culture with uh, Dia de los Muertos, powwows, sunrise ceremony. You know, there are many ancient celebrations that encourage us to learn more about our ancestors and our Mother Earth. Remembering the history of those who came before us helps us find our way back to our roots. It really helps us all heal as a people. The Blanco family has an incredibly strong spirit and positive energy that's truly just, it's been passed down from my father. In the face of any trial or near defeat, our elders encourage the family and take us all back in, no matter what may have done along the way. The Blanco elders have given us an incredibly great gift, other than the fact that they were always around and sharing moments with our lives. They've given us this gift of peace by showing their heroic strength, always. This show is dedicated to my brother, Esteban Miranda Blanco, and to all of our elders who have passed on, and all of your elders who have passed on, but still remain with us in spirit. During tonight's show, you'll hear sounds and reflections from this past week, the sunrise ceremony on Alcatraz. You'll also hear audio from the original KPFA speech by historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, author of the just-released book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. You know, Sarah, until I joined the apprenticeship program, I didn't know about the politics Mm. behind the sunrise ceremony. I used to think it was just a traditional Native ceremony, Mm. but I've come to realize that there's more behind that. Mm -hmm. The sunrise ceremony actually commemorates the occupation of Alcatraz Island. Now, that took place in 1969 and lasted until 1970. It was an occupation that shined a spotlight on the squalid conditions experienced by Native peoples on reservations. Taiwei Caribe, soy el Taino. Taino is my spiritual name. 
I chose this name to honor the native people of my homeland. Quisqueya was home to a thriving Taino society with a population of an estimated million. Scholars have traced the ethnic origins of the Tainos to a migratory wave of Arawak groups from South America that lasted several centuries. By AD 700, Taino culture and society had evolved with well-defined characteristics, an economic structure built around fishing, farming, and hunting. Politically, the island was divided into five confederate tribes headed by caciques. The family structure followed no marriage laws. Men and women alike chose their mates and left them as they pleased, without offense, jealousy, or anger. Their society was based on sharing. This was all to change upon the arrival of Columbus. To me, Columbus is not a hero. I can just picture this arrogant, misinformed, gold-lusting pirate stumbling about my beautiful island after his misguided journey across the Atlantic. He writes, The inhabitants were such an affectionate and generous people. They loved their neighbors as themselves. Their speech, the sweetest and gentlest in the world. They willingly traded everything they owned. They're well-built, they do not bear arms, and do not know them. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. Subjugate and enslaved he did. His lust for gold and belief that the island had promising gold deposits led Columbus to mandate every Taino over the age of 14 to supply a gold quota. Those who did not were to be punished by having their hands cut off and left to bleed to death. The Tainos could not meet the demand, as there was very little gold on the island, and so Columbus tried to supplement his hunt for wealth by enslaving them. 550 of them were sent in chains on a ship to Seville. 200 of them died on the passage across the Atlantic. After this, Columbus built himself a fort, called it La Navidad, and set up an encomienda system, enabling appointed colonists to use the forced labor of the Tainos. Though the Taino warriors fought back after repeated rampages of rape and abuse of the Taino women, every attempt at self-defense failed. Soon, the native population was decimated as the Spanish settlers continued to spread. A census of the colony taken in 1508 showed that a mere 60,000 Tainos remained from the million encountered by the Spaniards. By 1519, their number was reduced to 30,000 And by 1542, a hundred years after Columbus arrived, there were 200 Tainos left in Quisqueya. There is no available evidence to suggest that any Taino community survived by the end of the 16th century. They died from hunger, alien diseases, and from the harshness of forced labor. Pregnant women systematically aborted or killed their own children to prevent them from becoming slaves. It is this history that has fueled my life's purpose to learn and to speak the truth of histories diluted into a palatable fairy tale. Capitalism, imperialism, and the weak shall perish mentality never quite fit into what I thought should be the way we take care of each other. So I follow the drum in my heart that led me to the Alcatraz sunrise ceremony, where I found healing under the stars, the moon, a crackling fire, a rising sun, brothers and sisters I'd never met before, but whose voices will never leave my heart.
to recognize that survivor instinct, that survivor spirit, that survivor will, and the spirit that kept them alive, and the spirit that's handed down to us here in the middle of this urban place, in the middle of this beautiful bay, in the middle of this place, which is also the scene of so much suffering and so much death and imprisonment of our peoples and other peoples. We are here today to say we continue to survive. We continue to resist. We honor with all of our hearts and all of our spirits those that stood up, not only to fight, but to stay who they were, to stay as those peoples that lived in Dios, as that pirate wrote, with, with the Creator, with Ache Ta'a, and that was what was passed down to us as well as the will to survive. I like to say good morning to our relatives. Today is a good day. The hearts of our people are strong and we extend our hand in friendship. That's one of the traditional greetings in one of the classical languages of the Western Hemisphere known as Lakota. And so on behalf of those veterans, one of which was my father, 1964, they came here for a day to draw attention to the idea that surplus U.S. property by treaty belongs to the indigenous peoples of this land. There's 371 treaties that were signed with the United States and various Indian nations. None of those treaties has been honored. And so we stand here today uh, again to honor not only those in 1964, but remember the students, the elders, the indigenous people who came in 1969. Because we consider that in our movements of indigenous people around the world to be one of the sparks that brought about the renaissance of indigenous people's rights. We as indigenous people are promoting indigenism. This is what we believe, that Mother Earth must be the foundation of government, not corporate interests, not the exploitation of Mother Earth. And so we offer this to those scholars, to those government officials, to look at the indigenous people's history of survival, to look at Mother Earth in the formulation of our future policies, to protect our way of life, to protect the future of humanity. As our elders have said, it's a day to renew our spirit, to renew our commitment. If you've never been here before, then it's a chance to find out who you are and on your path of life. We're all born with the path. It's up to us to find out why we're here on Earth. If you stray a little bit from your path, it's a dead end, but you have an opportunity to come back. It's such an honor to learn from elders who have great stories of wisdom and knowledge about who we are as people. And so never forget the old people who are still alive, 
and even the elders who are here, take time to talk to them. Never forget where you come from. And remember this day and all those people who have given their life for us so that we could be here to never forget to look forward to what is promised a good life. You are listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1. And today we are honoring Indigenous people and Indigenous People's Day, or as it is controversially still known as Columbus Day. In our next archive segment, we're going to bring you a Vox Pop where people talk a little bit deeper about Columbus Day. And this one here is produced by our very own Free Will and Frank Sterling. Then we're going to hear from Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz about the Federal Trust Responsibility, the Lakota people, and the Trail of Broken Treaties. Go ahead, let's take it away. Well, there's a, a lot of reasons to stop celebrating Columbus Day. I think the first is that it it perpetuates a false history of the United States and, and what happened here and what happened on this continent. And it's especially important for our young people because our children and our youth are constantly being bombarded by negative images of indigenous people. So you look at things like the Redskins and, and mascots and things like that. So it's, it's a change of thinking. It's an acknowledgement of the first peoples that were here on this continent. It's an acknowledgement and a validation of who we are as indigenous peoples. And I just think it's really important for um, our communities, indigenous peoples, to recognize that and to own it because we are resilient, um, beautiful people with beautiful cultures and languages and ways of life. To me, Columbus is a great destroyer because when he came to this, these Americas, you know, he saw, you know, an opportunity to take advantage of the indigenous people here. And with him, you know, he brought death, uh, enslaved our people. And from there to now, they've destroyed our culture, our language, and they've tried to uh, wipe us off the face of the earth. I'm a Seminole tribal member, you know, and at one point, the policy of the United States government was to exterminate us. And uh, I feel that the people in the Americas, you know, they should recognize what he really did. I can't see why they refuse to uh, recognize that, you know, what actually took place. Like I said, there was generations of generations of our people that suffered and, you know, we still have the struggles of uh, things that, you know, originated from Columbus stepping foot, you know, in Americas. As uh, somebody who's from the other side of that invisible border from Canada as an indigenous person coming here and realizing that the celebration is celebrating the genocide of our people as, an, as the indigenous people, the original people of this, what we call Turtle Island. And as a mother, um, I don't want my children being raised in this system that celebrates the mass slaughtering of our people, the genocide of our people, um, the to, to be reliving the trauma and the atrocities of our people. That, for me, is the reason, the main reason, is, is now we have a real opportunity and a, the, the opportunity to change um, the way moving forward. Like I said, it's, um, it says something about a 
country that would commemorate the beginning of a genocide of the original peoples. And that's what uh, October 12th, uh, 1492 represented. Uh, Columbus himself talked about enslaving the beautiful people that helped him, fed him, uh, were so peaceful and, and uh, generous. He commented and then he said, with 50 men, we could enslave them completely. So that's what we're celebrating here is what happened to the Taino peoples. Within 50 years, they were almost exterminated because of Columbus's actions. He actually took some slaves back to Europe. Most, most died along the way. So why should that be celebrated? Of course, it should be uh, changed to Indigenous Peoples Day in honor of the original peoples here and the generosity that they still show, that we still show uh, for those that arrive later on our shores. Um, as somebody said up on the island, that if you own land uh, in what's now called the United States, you should thank the indigenous peoples for that. You know, remember the indigenous peoples. And it's really a time to uh, support uh, their struggles here in California and to support our indigenous peoples' struggles for human rights and for our land and for protecting Mother Earth all over the continent and all over the world. Next up, we have a clip from Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, where she talks about the rise of AIM and some of the actions that they took. With the Vietnam War still raging and the re-election of Richard Nixon in November 1972 imminent, a coalition of eight indigenous organizations, the American Indian Movement, the National Indian Brotherhood of Canada, later renamed the Assembly of First Nations, the Native American Rights Fund, the Native Indian Youth Council, the National American Indian Council, the National Council on Indian Work, National Indian Leadership Training, and the American Indian Committee on Alcohol and Drug Abuse organized the Trail of Broken Treaties. Armed with a 20-point position paper that focused on federal government's responsibility to implement indigenous treaties and sovereignty, the caravan set out in the fall of 1972. The vehicles and numbers of participants multiplied at each stop, converging in Washington, D.C., one week before the presidential election. Hanging a banner from the front of the Bureau of Indian Affairs building that proclaimed that it to be the Native American embassy, hundreds of protesters hailing from 75 indigenous nations entered the building to sit in. Finally, sitting in in a building. BIA personnel at the time, largely non-indigenous, freaked out and fled. And the Capitol Police chain-locked the doors, announcing that the indigenous protesters were illegally occupying the building. They couldn't get out. The protesters stayed for six days, enough time for them to read damning federal documents that reveal gross mismanagement of the federal trust responsibility, which they boxed up and took with them. <laughs> Before <laughs> the Trail of Broken Treaties solidified indigenous alliances in the 20-point position paper. The work mainly of, of Hank Adams provided a template for the affinity of hundreds of native organizations. 
Five years later, in 1977, the document would be presented to the United Nations, forming the basis for the 2007 Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Three months after the BIA building takeover, Oglala Lakota traditional people at Pine Ridge Sioux Reservation in South Dakota invited the American Indian Movement to assist them in halting collusion between their tribal government formed under the terms of the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934 and the federal government that had crushed the people and further impoverished them. The people opened, uh, opposed the increasingly authoritarian reign of the elected tribal chairman, Richard Wilson. They invited AIM to send a delegation to support them. On February 27, 1973, long deliberations took place in the Pine Ridge Calico Hall between the local people and the AIM leaders, led by Russell Means, a citizen of, of Pine Ridge. The AIM activists were well known following the Trail of Broken Treaties caravan and upon AIM's arrival, the FBI, Tribal Police and the Chairman's Armed Special Unit, the Guardians of the Oglala Nations, they like to call themselves the Goon Squad, <laughs> mobilized. The meeting ended with a consensus decision to go to Wounded Knee in a caravan to protest the Chairman's misdeeds and the violence of his goons. The law enforcement contingent followed and circled the protesters. Over the following days, hundreds of more armed men surrounded Wounded Knee, and so began a two and a half month siege of protesters at the 1890 massacre site. The late 20th century hamlet of Wounded Knee was made up of little more than a trading post, a Catholic church, and the mass grave of hundreds of Lakota slaughtered in 1890. Now armed personnel carriers, Huey helicopters, and military snipers surrounded the site, while supply teams of mostly Lakota women made their way through the military lines and back out again through the dark of night. So this period of time between the so-called closing of the frontier marked by the 1890 Wounded Knee Massacre and the 1973 Siege of Wounded Knee, which marks the beginning of indigenous decolonization in North America, is illuminated by following the historical experience of the Lakota people. So I, I do that in this section. But what traditional translator and leader Matthew King, Lakota, the late Matthew King, uh, a Lakota, has described the United States throughout its history as alternating between a peace policy and a war policy in its relations with indigenous nations and communities. Matthew's saying that these pendulum swings coincided with the strength and weakness of native resistance. Between the alternatives of extermination and termination, which are war policies, genocidal, and preservation, peace policy, like the Indian Reorganization Act. King argued there were interim periods characterized simply by benign neglect and assimilation. With organized indigenous resistance to war programs and policies, concessions are granted. 
When pressure lightens, new schemes are developed to separate Indians from their land, resources, and cultures. Scholars, politicians, policymakers, and the media rarely term U.S. policy toward indigenous peoples as colonialism. King, however, believed that his people's country had been a colony of the United States since 1890. The logical progression of modern colonialism begins with economic penetration and graduates to a sphere of influence, then to protectorate status or indirect control, military occupation, and finally annexation and settler colonialism. This corresponds to the process experienced by the Lakota people and all other native people in relation to the United States government. Matthew King and other traditional Lakotas saw the siege of Wounded Knee in 1973 as a turning point, although the violent backlash that followed was harsh. Two decades of collective indigenous resistance culminating at Wounded Knee in 1973 defeated the 1950s federal termination policy. It simply disappeared. Tonight on Full Circle, we're highlighting some of the history and some of the struggle and survival of Native people of the United States. We're talking about honoring treaties or not honoring them, about how the truth will come to light. There are no secrets. In this next segment... We're going to hear how Native folks were deprived of their lands through the mechanism of homesteading as a result of the Homestead Act of 1862. Full Circle host Sam, the Shaolin B-Boy, interviews performer, producer, and part of the Freeland Project, Ariel Lucky. You're listening to KPFA 94.1. So the Freeland Project is an organization I started about five years ago. And the central element of it is the show Freeland, a hip-hop journey from the streets of Oakland to the wild, wild west. And it's an autobiographical piece. It follows my story, starting as a young man, having some experiences in high school and then in college and then as a young adult that compel me to really dig into the past and learn more about the history of the land that I live on, that my family has lived on, and a central part of United States history. Why did you choose to investigate the land that your family had? So it started really with a conversation I had with my grandfather. He grew up on a ranch in Wyoming. And uh, growing up, I had heard stories about the ranch. Um, and they had cows and horses. And it was, it was like the classic Wild West. But as an adult, I kind of had a different lens. And so I asked him questions. And one of the questions I asked him was how our family had gotten that land. And he said it was a homestead. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of a homestead in the context of my family. What does that mean? So the Homestead Act um, passed in 1862. And basically, the United States government was engaged in stealing Native American land. And so the Homestead Act was a way to distribute that big open land to individual white families. I had no idea of, about any of this when I first was talking to my grandfather. What? A free land? The government just gave us free land? Like, <laughs> you know, here we are in the t 21st century. That's that's like unheard of. I asked him who had lived on that land before our family, and he said it was empty. Now, I knew enough, of course, about Native, uh, you know, Native Americans just in a general sense to know that Native people were there before my family came. It started raising these questions that wouldn't really go away. So I felt 
eventually compelled to start doing the research and to find out specifically what Native people lived on that land, what happened to them, how did the land become empty so that it could be given to my family for free. Uh, Trina Williams did a study at um, Washington University and found that one out of every five white Americans alive today have at least one ancestor who homesteaded. So this is a big deal. It's a big part of our history. And if you look at who owns land today, most of the private land in this country is owned by white people. That's not an accident. That's actually a direct result of the Homestead Act. As a white person, why is it important that you are speaking on these issues and doing this work? Well, I think one of the common misconceptions about all of this is that it's only about Native Americans. I think this history says more about who white people are and what we have become than it says about Native Americans. Because, one, I think there's a tremendous amount of healing that needs to happen, and we're not going to reach a world that is just or equal or democratic or free until this truth gets looked at and acknowledged. You know, a lot of it is still happening today. If you look at what's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan, if you look at what's happening in Palestine, these processes of colonization, um, of racism, of land control, of cultural assimilation, all these things are are very much active and, and still being employed. Your show deals with the Wild West, the frontier, but it also deals with stuff a lot closer to home in Oakland. Do you want to speak a little bit on that? After I went out to Wyoming, and then I came back to Oakland and realized that I didn't really know anything about the history of this land. Even in the progressive social justice community, I still really didn't know almost anything about the Ohlone or, you know, what had happened here. One of the later sections of my show, Freeland, is the story of the Shell Mound in Emeryville, where the Bay Street Mall in Emeryville is on a Ohlone cemetery. So when you're walking through the mall, you are literally walking on a Native American cemetery. And in fact, in, in the building of the mall, they disturbed a lot of those buried bodies. And there were protests from the Ohlone community and other, other allies saying, you know, please don't build this mall here. So part of what I do later in, in Freeland is, is come back, bring it back to the Bay and look at the history of the, of the land here and the different levels of colonialization. You know, it's an ugly history, but I think it's important to know about because it has shaped the world that we live in today. I want to know, though, what has the reaction from the Native communities that are still around been to your shows? Generally, the response to the show is really good. A lot of Native folks are not surprised or blown away. They're like, they know this history, right? This is not like a wake-up call for them. They're like, yeah, that's true. In the way that sometimes for other audiences, like, oh, really? That happened? I didn't know, you know? But I have heard from folks an appreciation of like, wow, I've never seen a white person be that honest publicly about this history or, you know, try to address it in this way. Once again, this is Sam the Shaolin B-Boy sitting here with Ariel Lucky, performer, activist, artist. What do you want people to take away from these works that you're putting out? What do you want people who are walking away from free land to take with them? This history, this legacy of genocide against Native people is one of those crazy elephants in the room, right? That's like there, it impacts 
our lives every day in millions of ways that we mostly don't think about. It's obviously tremendously impacted the Native American community, but I also think it's really impacted everyone else. For the most part, we don't talk about it. We have these conversations around Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day. We have these conversations around Thanksgiving, and then mostly the country goes to sleep on this issue for the rest of the year. For me, part of what I see the goal is to really provoke people to think about them, about these questions. In honor of Indigenous Peoples Day, and an acknowledgement of Columbus. Can you break down some of what you feel are some of the top historical inaccuracies that still pop up as facts today? The biggest one that I think about is the idea that Native Americans are, are simply gone. And that might not be as prevalent here in the Bay Area, but certainly around the country, there's a lot of people who just have that sense that you know Native Americans were here a long time ago and now they're not. Native Americans are alive and well. People are living all over the place in, in every major city. Of course, the Thanksgiving story is one of the big ways that it shows up in society. And like I said earlier, most of the major um, elements of that story are, are not true. So certainly thanks, Thanksgiving is one one of those major inaccuracies of Columbus Day as well. Um, you know, same thing, Columbus was lost. Chinese folks, African folks were here in the Americas before Europeans got here. There's all kinds of information out there that doesn't fit into the narrative around Columbus that the mainstream culture portrays. Once again, this is Ariel Lucky. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. If you want to know more information, go to www.ariellucky.com. And that is spelled out A-R-I-E-L-L-U-C-K-E-Y dot com. Or check out freelandproject.com. This has been Sam, the Shaolin B-Boy, for Full Circle. And welcome back. Now it's time to enjoy some music. So back in 2004, the native artist Pura Fe graced Full Circle with a live performance in our KPFA performance studio. However, that show was produced by our very own First Voice graduate, John Watanabe. Although our own, our own uh, archive show of that date has disappeared, we wanted to share some of her amazing music with our listeners. So let's listen. Pura fe.
no border The border crosses This is Full Circle on KPFA Radio 94.1 FM. You just heard Pura Fe, that amazing, amazing artist, Pura Fe, singing My People, My Land, followed by Full Moon Rising, and then we heard Borders, as performed in Paris. Now, I also want to let the, everybody listening know about a couple of events going on. Uh, so a couple shout-outs here. Civic Center Park is going to be hosting an Indigenous Peoples Day celebration tomorrow, Saturday, October 8th. And that starts at 10 a.m. at the Civic Center Park on MLK, Martin Luther King, and Center Street. Um, we're also coming up on the anniversary of the Black Panthers movement. So you are welcome to a free celebration of Oakland life through hip-hop, intergenerational health, and environmental action. It's a tribute to the Black Panthers called Life is Living, and you can go to lifeisliving.org. Both of those events are October 8th, 10 a.m., and uh, the Life is Living event is going on at the Defremery Park. The Indigenous Peoples Day is going to be going on at the Civic Center Park in Berkeley. Uh, different peoples are going to be piecing it together for the same thing, equality and the pursuit of happiness. Also remember... On uh, Monday, October 10th, Indigenous Peoples Day, Indigenous Peoples Day, a sunrise ceremony at Pier 33 in in, um, San Francisco. That's a sunrise service, so you got to be there really early at 4 a.m., 4.30. We're going to get back into it here. We're going to listen to a little bit more from a wonderful native artist, Pura Fe, and she's going to, we're going to hear a couple more songs here. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that. Thank you. And this is called Della Blackman. I wrote this for my grandmother's auntie who was killed by the Ku Klux Klan in the early 1900s here in North Carolina. And this is in memory of her and the story that I was told. And it's a common story.
Della Blackman by amazing artist Pura Faye. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day in solidarity with the warriors out there, especially right now in the Dakota lands. Tune in next week to Full Circle at 7 p.m. here on KPFA 94.1 FM. Our website is kpfaapprentice.org. You can also check out our archived shows at kpfa.org. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Our production consultant is Joy Moore. And I've been your host, David de la Gran. And we're going to go out with Pura Fe's song, Great Grandpa's Panjo. Stay tuned for an awesome show from La Onda Bajita. Yeah, 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 yeah.
Ah. Uh-huh. 